you can flip kind of towards the end-ish, uh, definitely in the second half. It's actually the first book in the New Testament is Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. We are continuing today a series that uh, I've been calling Constructing Faith to Last. And uh, you may catch the pun or the joke or the, liter- or the, the uh, reference there to this idea of deconstruction. We've talked about a lot about how sometimes uh, it's just necessary for us to really pick apart and take apart the things that we believe uh, and to make sure that they're things we actually believe and that, uh, that what we believe is good and that what we believe is true. And I've tried to give a nod to say that, you know, thoughtful or careful deconstruction is actually something that is necessary for a Christian. Uh, next week, Kara's going to talk a little bit more about this idea of living in a construction zone. Uh, but this week, I want to talk about building a house of prayer for all people. Uh, because I think this is something that is near and dear to Jesus' heart. When we talk about what we're building, uh, you know, we want to build on the Scriptures. We want to build on that foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as our, cor- as our chief cornerstone. We want to build according to the instructions in the Word of God or in the Bible. Uh, we know that the Bible points to a reality uh, beyond itself. It points to a, a mystical reality that's beyond our understanding, that is Jesus uh, and, and the God that Jesus reveals. Uh, and, uh, but as we're building, we see that Jesus has some, some harsh words to some religious authority. He critiques them using Scripture. We're going to look a little more in-depth at that passage today and just see how Really, I think a lot of what is happening in the zeitgeist or the the spirit of our age right now is in response to the church failing to live up to Jesus' mission and Jesus' calling to be a house of prayer, to be a gathering or a family that is centered on prayer towards the living God that Jesus revealed and to do that in a way that includes as many people who want to come along for the journey, as many people who are willing to follow Jesus and obey him and walk in obedience to him. Uh, That's the invitation. And so uh, I just want to approach this with prayer, uh, since we're trying to be a house of prayer for all people. I thought maybe prayer might be a good place to start. Uh, So Lord, I just ask again that if I say anything dumb today, that that would fall on the floor. But Lord, I do ask that somehow, by your Spirit, that you would be here, that you would speak to us through the Scriptures, and that you would be revealed, God, and that your will for us as a community would be revealed. And that, Lord, you would inspire us and draw us with your cords of kindness and love to follow you and to love the people that you've placed us with in this life to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. And I ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. You might remember this story. This is just after Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey rather than a war horse. He comes into town riding on a donkey and the people cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. You know, we recognize that you're the Savior. Be our Savior, is what people are calling out to him. And then Jesus enters the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. 
It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night because Jesus uh, didn't want to die in that exact moment, right? He couldn't stay in town uh, because he knew uh, people were plotting and he had, he had other things to do. You know, I can't help but notice, in, in, as we're kind of talking about this series, of, of trying to build something that can last, but also recognizing that sometimes taking things apart and breaking things uh, is necessary, that in this passage, Jesus broke some stuff. Jesus broke some stuff. And this is kind of maybe the famous example that we have. It's in all four of the Gospels. Uh, a lot of stories about Jesus only appear in two or three. But this story seems important enough, along with the crucifixion and along with the resurrection, which is at least implied in Mark's gospel, uh, that, uh, that this was something that it, all the gospel writers wanted us to know. They wanted us to know that Jesus made a scene and stood up to corruption in the temple at Jerusalem and that Jesus destroyed property. And I think that one of the things that, and if that's not deconstruction, I don't know what is. Um, you know, Jesus broke some stuff. And I think this, there, there's some things to learn here. I think one of the first things to learn is that, you know, this idea of nonviolence, I, I, sometimes I have a problem with the term pacifism uh, because it sounds passive. And many times, many times the way of peace is to trust God and to not act, and to trust God in a way that is radical enough that, uh, that we don't uh, act ourselves, but we're trusting God to act uh, on our behalf to bring about justice to a certain situation. But I think that what this story shows is that oftentimes nonviolent action, or action that doesn't result in harm to others, physical harm uh, to another person's body, is actually quite disruptive. And that the, the work that Jesus calls us into as his followers is often to stand up to evil where we see it. Nonviolence is not passive, but it is active and it is disruptive to violent systems. And so the Prince of Peace, the, the one who is bringing shalom rest to the earth, uh, stands against violent systems and he deconstructs exploitation, corruption, and abuse. And I would say he goes, he goes further than deconstruction. I think his, his goal is really demolition, to, to tear down some things that will not be rebuilt, but to destroy the work of the enemy, and even in those institutions that we hold to be holy and beyond, uh, beyond reproach. I think in order to understand kind of the depth of what Jesus is saying here, it would be good to look at the two scriptures that he's referencing in the center of his rebuke of the religious authority of his day, 
Uh, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. So when we look at Isaiah 56, it says this. This kind of gives us a clue into why Jesus is so angry, why he is so willing to take this action that gets him killed, to be honest. Uh, this, is, this is really seen as the incident that led to his crucifixion. And so Jesus is willing to die for this. He's willing to die for this, this vision in Isaiah 56, which is this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let, the for- let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. We see that Jesus is quoting this scripture. When he says, my house is to be a house of prayer, it's supposed to be a house of prayer that's accessible to everyone, including those that society often disregards, that society would often say have no place. The shame of being a eunuch. I hope I don't have to explain exactly what that is. Uh, but it's, it's a person who has uh, been injured in a very sensitive way, in a shameful way. Uh, and in a way that uh, limits their ability to procreate. And God says to people who are in that situation, who don't, who you know, can't marry, who can't produce children, who can't, uh, who can't be in a loving relationship uh, that is uh, would be understood as marriage, uh, that, th- that those people are welcome. That those people are invited to bind themselves to the Lord and to serve the Lord. And, and, and if you're not Jewish, if you weren't born into the family, if you weren't born into the people of God, but you bind yourself to the Lord, then your, your sacrifice will be accepted, that your, 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 uh, your worship will be accepted by God, and God will receive that, and God will pour his blessing out and make a memorial and a name all people from any nation, from any people. Of course, that's not what was going on in the temple. That's not what was happening in Jesus' day. Jesus 
was dealing with nationalistic leaders, with people who wanted to use God's purpose and God's agenda and this, this, this thing that God had been working on for centuries and millennia to justify their political gain and their political agenda. And so Jesus calls them out, quoting this passage from Jeremiah. In this great prophetic tradition of critiquing authority and maybe perhaps even religious authority that is woven all through the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord that came that this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty The God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, and if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and other gods you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Jeremiah doesn't pull any punches, and neither does Jesus when he's quoting him. You know, the thing that's happening here is that... that uh, what was happening in Jesus' day is that, uh, that people were buying and selling in the temple. And so one thing that we know that was going on was that uh, the poor were being excluded by this practice. Their, their worship was being hindered because the, the people in the temple would say, well, you have, to, you have to buy a temple dove in order to make a sacrifice in the temple. And so, uh, and so since this is the only dove that you can buy to use in worship at this temple... Uh, you know, it's, we're going to charge a premium because we've, we've got a monopoly on this racket, right? Uh, or at least that is probably what was going on at the, at the seller's table there. But people are making a profit off of other people trying to worship God. They're getting rich. They're exploiting people over their desire to connect with the living God. God's temple is supposed to be available to all people. The doves that uh, are... are um, that are accepted as an offering to the Lord in the temple, that, that was the way that poor people in the Levitical code could worship the Lord because people who don't own cattle, uh, can, they can catch a bird. They can, <laughs> they can, they can acquire uh, a dove for, for a, a smaller fee or at a smaller expense. That they can bring something to the Lord to offer. And God accepts that worship. But these, these people who are buying and selling in the temple, they're interfering with that. They're getting in the way of that for their own gain and for their own profit. 
And this infuriates Jesus. So let's just look at those first couple of verses of Matthew 21, 12 through 13. Hearing the quotes of those passages that we read, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. And anybody who knows the lyrics to that song knows that he's saying it'll be a house of prayer for all nations. But you are making it a den of robbers. Part of the reason I think that we're having so much deconstruction in our current American context and why so many people are questioning or walking away from faith is uh, they've got good reason to. The, the church in America has a history of being linked with white supremacy and oppression. And the church in America has kowtowed to a sort of dominionistic uh, theology that says, you know, manifest destiny, and because God is on our side, the violence that we want to perpetrate as the federal government of the United States is justified. And we're really reckoning with those bad seeds sown in some pretty scary and, uh, and alarming ways. I mean, January 6th, where we have people waving American flags and Jesus flags, which we could stop right there and say that's alarming, but then we have people waving American flags and Jesus flags and Confederate flags. And the people waving the Jesus flags are also constructing gallows. Presumably in an attempt to execute political enemies. And I can't help but see the irony in a people who worship a man who was publicly executed by the state, unjustly, then building implements of torture and death and saying they're doing it in his name. That's disturbing to me. And I think it shows just how askew any theology that would use that justification, that would use Christianity as a justification for violence is. There's a long history of that in the United States, and uh, it's, it's deeply disturbing. But what we he see here is Jesus disrupting those systems of oppression. He's disrupting lies about who God is and what it takes to get to God. And we see that radical inclusion and redemption was always the plan. The people you think are irredeemable, the people you think are beyond God's reach, the people you think will never come to Jesus, the people you think will never live a righteous life or embrace the way of the Lord, who will never uh, you know, turn away from violence and embrace the way of the cross, the people who you think are beyond redemption, who are beyond inclusion, Jesus shows us that that is not the case that everyone can be redeemed, that everyone can be called on this road to discipleship, and anyone can, if they will, join the family of God and join the family of Abraham. That's what he died to do. And so we see in Galatians 3.8 that Paul kind of explains this idea. This is a story that begins a long time ago, all the way back in Genesis, 
when God called Abraham, he said, Paul says this, he says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's people outside of the Jewish family, outside of the Jewish nation, that God would justify Gentile, probably most of the people in this room, if not all of the people in this room. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. And then he continues later on in the chapter to say this. He says some really radical things. He says in Galatians 3.26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And just so that we don't, just so that we don't get confused by what this verse is saying, uh, and, and so that we don't think that this is saying that we should be colorblind or that uh, we have like a monoculture uh, within Christianity or something like that, or that following Jesus means that you give up those identifiers that have defined your life, uh, that you somehow become not Jewish or not Gentile or not male or not female or, or, to, or, to ch- or you have to change your station in life or something like that. Uh, I, I want to read from uh, Revelation 7. It says this, it says that after this I looked, whoever is receiving this revelation, John, we think, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the land. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you could just back up one slide there to verse 9. You know, I think it's really important to notice that in heaven, not everyone is speaking the same language. Not everyone looks the same. Not everyone, you know, we don't all just become like little clones of of a Jewish man who lived in Palestine in the first century. Like, we're still ourselves in the coming kingdom. We're still who we are. We still bring those experiences. We still bring our pain. You know, if you read on in the passage, it talks about these are the people who were martyred. These are the people who died because they followed Jesus. And they're from every tongue and from every tribe and from every nation. That means that they're praising God in their own tongue. They're praising God in ways that they're still identified uh, by their nation and their tribe and their people and their language. That they're bringing a unique culture that is part of the created order and part of God's original design in creation. But they're, they're unified because of their object of worship. They're unified in coming to Jesus. They have Jesus as their center. And that is what brings the kingdom of God and a new heaven and a new earth. When Jesus is our center and he's the one that we worship, we see that is the picture of the coming kingdom. And I think about this when I think about my friend, uh, a friend from a distance. I I don't know him terribly well, but I do admire him deeply. My friend Gino Olison, who is a a black vineyard pastor in um, South Chicago area. He pastors the South Suburban Vineyard. 
And he's done a lot to help the vineyard grow as a movement uh, because we're, we're a particular movement of churches from a particular time and place, Southern California in the late 70s, early 80s, move of God, Jesus people coming, uh, you know, lots of, lots of hippies coming to Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we're still kind of a younger movement, uh, pretty overwhelmingly white, but becoming a lot more diverse um, in, in a lot of ways. And that's largely because of the patience <laughs> and the concern and the care of many people of color and many people of various different backgrounds within the vineyard movement, Gino says this when he, when he encourages pastors to think about cultivating communities and praying for communities that represent the kingdom diversity that we see in Revelation when all people are united with Jesus. Uh, Gino says this. He says, there's a difference between saying you can come here and this was made with you in mind. There's a difference between saying you can come here. You know, everybody can come here. That's, that's part of it, right? Part of what Jesus is really mad about uh, is that the people buying and selling are getting in the way of people coming to God. That's his main thing that's making him really angry and making him make a scene in that situation. And so, yeah, we want everybody to come here, but we also want to build a church that has people besides the people who are already here in mind. We, we want to make it easy for all kinds of people to encounter God in our church. We want to make it as painless as possible. We want to remove the stumbling blocks. We want to get things out of the way that might be confusing or off-putting to people who haven't come to Christ yet, and we need to do that in a thoughtful way, with sincerity and with urgency as a community so that we can build the church that God wants to build, so that we can participate in the work of what God is doing. And I notice here that in this story, Jesus doesn't destroy the temple. He doesn't destroy the temple. He does prophesy its destruction at many times. But in this state, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't go in and, and, and tear up the altars. He doesn't go in and, 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 and desecrate, you know, the instruments of worship, the things that are consecrated to the Lord. But he causes a scene and he gets the extra stuff out of there. He gets the things that don't belong in the temple out. But this is, this is the direction things are moving eventually the, the temple does become obsolete, at least for disciples of Jesus. In Matthew 27, it says this. It says that uh, this is the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, not being the violent king, but the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And then the next verse, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split, and it says that righteous people came out of their graves. It's like a foreshadowing of the final resurrection happened in this moment when Jesus died. As the kingdom of God finally broke out into all of creation, if, if we don't understand the reference to the, the veil of the, the, of the temple curtain, so, you know, the temple is built with these kind of concentric circles that, that it gets more and more holy as you approach the presence of God. And so you have these outer courts. That's where people were buying and selling and, and 
you know, the doves are doing their thing. And then you kind of have this inner, you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place that's, that's in the middle, the holy of holies. Well, that, that holy of holies, that most inner sanctum, that was separated from the, from, the, uh, from the next place out by a curtain. And you only went behind the curtain a few days a year, really one day a year with the, with the Day of Atonement, where the priest would offer uh, a, a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people to make atonement uh, for the, the sins of the people of Israel. And there is more than one occasion when people who are sinful or who are in a sinful state or an unclean state approach God in a manner that doesn't give God reverence and awe, then they die. And so, you know, they, they would do things like tie a rope on the, on the priest's leg to be able to pull him out if he died in there, you know, because it kind of creates a problem, right? So it's risky business to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. But what happens in this story, what happens in this telling of the gospel is that the moment Jesus Christ died on the cross, that temple veil was torn from top to bottom. The implication here being that God himself tore the veil open. And so the, the separation of the presence of God from the rest of creation has now been rent asunder. It's, it's been torn in half. It's been ripped apart. It's been dismantled, if you will, by God in the work of Jesus Christ. And the good news for us that I think is important for us to remember is that God is available to us and God's Spirit doesn't need a building. I like this building. I want to take care of this building. This building is a great asset. It allows us to host things. It allows us to have a space to worship. It allows us to meet together. But, but you don't have to be here. Of course, we all know that the, the church is not this building. The church is the gathered people. Wherever two or more are together, Jesus is with us in our midst. Notably, you can't, it, it is two or more. It's not just one person alone, right? You, you can't really do Christianity by yourself. You have to have at least one other person because you can't love your neighbor if you don't have a neighbor. You don't have anybody else to express love to. Um, you're going to be stuck. You can't really do the things that Jesus talked about. But the good news to us is that God is available to everyone, and we want to be a people who make God available to everyone, who clearly articulate and demonstrate this good news to our community, and to everyone in our community, and that we tear down anything that gets in the way of that. And so I want to just make this invitation. I kind of, you know, I've already kind of thrown it out there during announcements, but I want to make this invitation again today uh, to join the conversation, particularly about LGBTQ people who are in our church, who are in our community, and who we know, who we work with, who we love. Um, you know, people like my sister, my biological sister, fall under this category. And I can't preach or say everything that needs to be said, and honestly, it wouldn't be useful to try to preach a sermon about this. But I will say this. I will say that I think that I have been on a journey of learning uh, by listening to people who have a different experience of life than my own. And I think that that process of listening is very important. And that's something that I want to engage in 
at a community level. And we want to do that with people who are remaining faithful to what the Bible teaches, who are willing to walk the way of, the way of Christ, who are, willing to, who are willing to walk the way of the cross and do difficult things, self-sacrificial things, in order to honor God with their whole lives. And so this is a complex issue, mostly because of the violent history of the church in the United States and in the sort of imperialist uh, or the, the compromised Christianity that is so often prevalent in our society and particularly in the civic religion of America, uh, those things complicate what the scriptures have said because what's true is that the church in America has used what the scriptures have said in a weaponized way to justify great evil. We see this against the people who were here before the Europeans arrived. We see this in the institutions of slavery. Uh, and we see this with our friends and relatives and brothers and sisters in Christ who experience same-sex attraction or gender identity issues. And we need to have a conversation about that reality and what we as a church mean to do in the future in order to be better than what has come before us at caring for all people. And so I want to invite you to come to the conversation. Uh, I want to say about it that we will almost certainly not agree about everything. And so it's not unintentional that we're having this conversation after we had a long uh, sermon series and have talked a lot about these ideas of emotional maturity. You know, emotionally mature people are able to disagree and still love each other and stay in relationship. And that will need to be practiced as we have this conversation. I also think that it's really important that we have some framework or at least a few guidelines uh, as we're questioning things and as we're asking questions and as we're taking things apart and trying to figure out what we're believing and what we're building together, that we do that in an intentional way, in an, a way that honors the scriptures, in a way that honors God, that honors the image of God in one another. And so it's not by accident that we've waited for a while to start this conversation, but I do think that it's a very important conversation for us to have, and I hope that many people will make time and be able to come. There's probably some other ways that God wants to work here this morning. But the good news is that God is with us. God is for us. And so wherever you're coming from, whatever your opinion about LGBTQ stuff is, whatever your orientation is, whatever your gender identity is, whatever language you speak, whatever, uh, whatever family you come from, whatever nation you're a part of, the good news is that the, the, the veil of the temple has been ripped in half and the presence of God has gone out and has come near through the work of Jesus Christ. And it is that that we want to experience, be empowered by, and partake in right now. So would you stand?